Hello and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. Welcome back to this series of Dhamma Talks, a series entitled Buddha's Guide to Happiness. On this journey that we have traveled thus far, we started talking about what our life's purpose is. That's where all of this started. Because that is where we are heading to achieve that purpose. What we realized throughout our time together is that although people have a clear purpose in their lives, the things that they seem to get up to don't necessarily seem to converge to that unitary purpose. Now, for those of you who have been listening to us and have joined with us throughout this program, we'll know what it is that I'm talking about. What is life's purpose? It is the achievement of happiness. That is why we do everything we do. It is for our fulfillment, satisfaction, peace of mind, whatever you want to call it. Contentment, ultimately bliss. This is what we'd like to achieve. And in that name, people seem to get up to all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But we must admit that for our best intentions, it's quite frustrating that no matter what we get up to, how creative we are, how rich our imagination might be, most of the things that we get through on a daily basis and over the years of course of our lives, they don't somehow seem to add up to that single purpose. Whilst on the surface it might seem like it, when you dig a little bit deeper, you begin to realize that it has all been but lots of effort, but for very little result. You know this because you seem to need to do various things over the course of your life for the purpose of happiness. If there was one thing that could achieve happiness that we all yearn for, then doing that one thing should make the pursuit of happiness unnecessary from that point forward. For instance, if there was something you could do, something you could experience, someone you could be with, that would give you that fulfillment, that would enable you to achieve that bliss, then from there on, you shouldn't have to do anything else, be with anyone else, or do anything else to achieve that happiness. 
It should just be, I've got it, I no longer need to strive for it. But we know from our own life's experience that this is not true. And that is why we do all sorts of things. And that's why we get up to all sorts of occupations, adventures, hobbies. People have various interests and people seek new and varied experiences throughout their life. All of this is simply evidence that we have somehow, down the line of human evolution, our cognition has not yet managed to achieve. For all the amazing and wonderful feats that we have been able to accomplish as a human race, we have as yet to come up with this magic potion somehow to achieve an unending satisfaction. Now that we must all agree. So our journey then is to further that discovery because somehow all the things that we seem to have done and all the same things we seem to do on a daily basis, on a regular basis, doesn't seem to help us achieve that. Therefore, our journey has been one of discovery to somehow find, explore, turn every unturned stone in the hope of finding that ultimate state of mind that can enable us to live in a never-ending state of happiness. So on that journey, we have come thus far and we look forward to have you with us as we take another step forward. Before we do that, let us take a moment to pay homage to the Supreme One, the Perfectly Enlightened One, the Magnificent One, the Unvanquished One, the Undefeated One. This is the Supreme Lord Buddha. Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa so, where have we got ourselves to thus far? In the last talk, we discussed the four ordinary or non-noble truths. They're ordinary because it's what everyone does. It's what ordinary people do. It is not the method of the extraordinary people. So every other person you meet will be engaged in some sort of way in this method. What is that method? Let's do a quick recap. So we discussed the four truths. But which truths in particular? The four non-noble truths or you could simply call them the four ordinary truths. Now you might ask me, where do I find this in the Buddhist scriptures? Well, you wouldn't, because this is not something that was expounded by the Buddha. 
if it were, then everyone engaged in this should be heading towards ultimate bliss or nirvana. But they're not. And that is because this is the ordinary method of ordinary folk. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's not that everyone who does that is stupid. No, they're simply ignorant. And I don't that mean that in a demeaning way either. Ignorance is simply not knowing. You can't be punished for something you don't know. You just don't know it. So what can you do? Well, someone needs to enlighten you. And that is what the Buddha did. He discovered the four noble truths. And for folk like you and I, who are so busily and heavily engaged in leading our lives through the methods of the four non-noble truths, he introduced an alternative, the right way, the right path to achieving our purpose. So he never asked us to change our purpose. He never said this is not what life should be for. He never denied or said that happiness is not what you should all be seeking. Instead, all he said was, if happiness is what you seek, and that's perfectly fine and there's nothing wrong with that, then you're just on the wrong path. And therefore he introduced the right path, which we'll come to later. But what is this so-called wrong path or the path that we are all on at the moment? Most people are, at least. This is what we talked about in last week's talk as the four non-noble truths. So let's quickly recap. The first non-noble truths or the first ordinary truth. What was that? I want something, but I can't have it for whatever reason. So when I can't have it, that is the first non-noble truth of suffering. Right? Just think about it. Go back to some of the examples we discussed last week. You want something, but you can't have it. Now that is clearly a reason for distress, isn't it? No one likes to not have what they want. It's very upsetting. It's very unsatisfying. And you don't want to be in that state. You want to somehow get out of that state. And move to a state of, I want something and I've got it. So, the first non-noble truth of suffering is, there's something that I want, but I don't have it. Or I can't get hold of it. Something's getting in the way of me acquiring it. Now, the second non-noble truth. The second non-noble truth. What is it? Well, once you figure out that there's a problem, the next thing you need to do is work out the cause for that problem or the cause of that problem. So if there's something you want but you can't have it, then what is the reason that you can't have it? That becomes the second non-noble truth or the second ordinary truth. Once again, why do I say that these are the ordinary truths? Because it's what ordinary people do. 
That's not to say that they're of less intelligence or they're somehow inferior to other people. Nothing like that. And nothing intended of the same either. It's simply that they're not knowledgeable, they're not intelligible about an alternative. So what can you do? If you don't know, you don't know, right? But the first thing we need to understand is there's something that we do know and we don't necessarily need to discard that and pick up a new habit or a new way or a new method if there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the old one. And this is why I'm discussing with you the, the current method, the present way and means of how we go about life and work towards our happiness. So when there's something that we can't have, Next, we immediately go on to find out the cause for that. We took lots of examples last week, like when a kid wants to have a bar of chocolate all by himself, but his brother won't allow him to do that. It gets in the way, pesky little one. So what do you do? You now need to stop him from doing that. Why? Because your brother is the reason, or the brother in this example, friend or whoever, there's someone who's getting in the way of me having what I want. So if you just got rid of whatever that obstacle is, whether that is a person, a thing, or some other kind of being, some, some kind of situation, whatever. Remember we talked about buying a car. I want a car, but I don't have a car. Why? Because I don't have the money. So that being the cause, next up, we need to find a way to get rid of the cause. So in the case of the chocolate, I need to find a way to get rid of my annoying little brother who stops me from having the chocolate all by myself. So I run to my mother. The guy who wants a car, he's got no money, so he needs to find some money. Because if he found the money, then he no longer needs to be in a state of despair because he can't get hold of the car. Therefore, he runs to the bank. See? Because he knows once he runs to the bank or once he makes his loan application, he can get either a credit card, a bank loan, an overdraft, whatever. He can borrow some money. What does that money allow him to do? It takes out the cause that's preventing him from having what he wants. What is the cause that's preventing him from having what he wants? No money. So when you have money, it takes out the problem. Or at least it takes out the cause of the problem, which is not having money. Because they are, of, of course, polar opposites of each other. So if you go and, in the case of a chocolate, go and complain to your mother, Mom, my brother's not letting me have my chocolate by myself. Right? So what we expect is for the mother to go and have a word with the younger brother. Maybe ask him to stop annoying me. Or tell him it's, it's not right that he should come and ask for my chocolate. Somehow we just want him to stop doing that. So if we manage to find a way to do that, then next up is to execute. Whatever method we have found and established as a means of getting rid of the cause, next up is to execute that process. Put that into action. Why do we do that? 
so that the cause can then be eradicated. So there you have the third and the fourth non-noble truths. So that's quite straightforward. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's what we've been doing all along. So, you know, this is nothing foreign to us. It's nothing new to us. We are all so accustomed to the four non-noble truths. So they are once again, the first non-noble truth, I can't have what I want. Right? I can't have what I want. That is the first non-noble truth. Isn't that the problem that most of you have? As you go through life, isn't that why people go picketing? Why people protest? Right? That not that why we have world wars, riots, civil uprisings, people getting into fights and altercations? Whatever. Isn't this why people go to work? I don't mean people shouldn't be going to work, but I'm just saying, you know, this is why people engage in labor, work. Play, right? When you want something and you don't have it, next what you need to do is somehow to go and get it. So I've given you a few simple examples, but you can apply it to absolutely anything you want. Any, any other kind of situation. So I can't have what I want. It's the first non-noble truth. The second is, there's a cause that's getting in the way of me having what I want. So there's a causal mechanism that's preventing me or that has prevented me thus far from getting what I want. Find that out. Right? Once you found that out, that is the second non-noble truth of suffering. And why is it suffering? Why do we have this? Why do we say it is the truth of suffering? Because that is what suffering is, isn't it? I can't have what I want. So how does that make you feel? Happy? Of course not. That's suffering. That's why. Because suffering seems to be getting in the way of us achieving happiness. Even there, you apply the four truths. The life's purpose is happiness. Why can't I be happy? Well, that's because something's getting in the way of me being happy. And what is that? At suffering. So find out the cause of suffering and then eradicate that cause of suffering. That should allow us to be happy. Find the path to achieve that and now you've got yourself a method to achieve your result. So this principle applies to absolutely everything we do, folks. It's an intricate part of our existence. You know, no matter where you look, no matter what people are engaged in, it's, it's the fundamental truth behind life and pretty much everything that people do in their lives. There's probably not one example you could give me of some form of activity that happens in this world by any sort of living being, whether that is a human or non-human, where you could point and say, well, Bhante, I don't believe that what that person's doing is something that's not towards, not geared towards achieving their happiness in life. 
It might not be your definition of happiness, because happiness can be different things for different people. For some people it's being without pain, whereas for others it's being in pain. Yes, some people like pain. You know what I'm talking about. That is how some people get their kicks. So, you can't universally define happiness as, as being this substance or this object or this person or being in, in this kind of situation. It's, it's varied. Horses for causes. Everyone has a different cup of tea. And that's quite alright because that's not a problem. It doesn't get in the way of us trying to understand the, the, the basic principle here. All we are concerned is with the principle. Not the specific examples of where this principle applies. Because no matter which example you look at, the principle still stands. It's always true. Let me put you on the spot. Can you name one thing that you've done in your life that was not aimed at your ultimate goal of achieving happiness? Ah, now you might say, well, Bhante, you know, there are things that I do, but they're not really for my happiness. It's for other people's happiness. Right? I, I help out my parents. That doesn't make me happy particularly, but I know my mother, my father, you know, takes a great deal of pleasure from that, from knowing that I care about them. So that is why I do them. Well, I have a question for you. Knowing that they know that you care about them, Knowing that, how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel when your mother's happy with your actions? It makes you feel what? Gotcha. How does it make you feel when you help an old lady cross the street and she says, thank you? Or even if she wouldn't say thank you, even if she couldn't say, perhaps she forgot to say, or maybe she's just, you know, too old and frail and she, she doesn't really know what's going on, right? But you still help her across the street. Don't you get a good feeling out of it? That you've done something good, you've done something beneficial, you've done something to help someone, you've been altruistic. Doesn't that make you feel good? That's not a bad thing, by the way. It's, a, it's an incredibly good thing and we should, people should be doing more and more of such, such, such things. I myself, I try and do as much of that as possible. And I think more people should be doing more of that. Because it's what makes this world a habitable place. In spite of all the evil and you know, all the animosity and all the violence that goes on, it's the goodness in people's hearts that has remained this earth, this planet, a habitable place for everyone. So more people should be doing such altruistic things. Now, I don't mean therefore that it is wrong or it is, that it shouldn't be done. I myself would encourage and commend such worthy actions. My point here being though, this is why it's very important that you capture the essence I'm trying to share with you here. I'm talking about the principle, folks. I'm talking about the, 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 the essence here. The salient point here that I'm trying to get across to you is all of this is done in the name of personal fulfillment, personal happiness, personal accomplishment and achievement, satisfaction. 
Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. I just want you to understand that. This is what's going on. You see a beggar and you give him some money. How does that make you feel? Good. That's why you do it. That's why you don't kick the beggar. Why? Because that doesn't make you feel good. That's why you don't do it. That's why you don't slap him. It doesn't make you feel good. But say someone was really angry with someone. Right? And they wanted to somehow make their anger known to the other person. Or they're so angry that they want it's 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 a rage and they want to have a go at the other person for revenge, maybe, or to punish them. Now to make them feel happy, they have to engage in that activity. That's not right, but they do it nonetheless. Why? Because that's what makes them happy. Perhaps later, he'll go on to regret his actions. And at that point, when he's in reflection mode and he regrets what has happened, he might even go across to the other person and say, you know, hey, I'm really sorry about what happened earlier. Because at that time, that's what makes him happy. Asking for forgiveness, apologizing, saying that he's sorry. That's what makes him happy and therefore he does it. So you see, you'd struggle to find a single reason in your life, a single event, a single activity, a single example of something you've done, something you've been involved or, in part, or been part of, which you would say, you could say that that's one thing that I did and that was not in the name of happiness. I doubt anyone of you, myself, anyone really, could say there's one single thing that was done and that was not for happiness. Everything we do is, is for that. Now, the Buddha, he expounded the Dhamma, the essence of what I'm sharing with you through these talks, for the very same reason. He was a normal human being just like you and I, in many ways. There are many, an equal number of ways in which he was extraordinary, but in many ways he was an ordinary human being like you and I. And his quest was to free himself from suffering. In other words, his quest was for happiness, just like you and I. This is why it makes sense to investigate what was it that he did? What was his methods? What did he do to achieve that? Because his goal was the same as yours and mine. His purpose was the same as yours and mine. And for what we know, he was able to achieve that. Therefore, it makes sense for you and I to study what he did and how he did it. And this is contained within his teachings. He shared with us his guide, his personal guide to happiness. That is the Buddha's guide to happiness. The title of these talks. The purpose of these talks. The aim, the vision, the ambition of these talks. Is to share that message with you. So, now we have understood the four non-noble truths of suffering. Okay, so that was a recap of what we talked about last week. Engaging 
in these four non-noble truths. Using them as our guiding principle to live our life will forever keep us where we are. Doing more of the same things will only keep you in the same place. So more of what you do right now will keep you exactly where you are right now. So if the methods that you have been using throughout how many years of your life has always left you wanting more, has always left you still void of satisfaction, still blank, still empty of eternal fulfillment, a never-ending joy and ultimate bliss. Well, continuing on those same methods or with those same methods on the, on the same path will only keep you in the same place. And therefore, we need to find an alternative. So what might that alternative be? Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the four noble truths. This is the alternative. Now you'll have to pay very close attention, close and careful attention, and do your best to try and make sense of this. I'm not suggesting for one bit that this is incredibly difficult to understand, but this will be new for at least some or if not most of you. If you have been our regulars from when we even started doing these talks many years ago, not this particular series, but talks before that, then of course you'll be quite familiar with them, with these principles. But if you've only joined us for this series of the recent talks, then this may be a novel concept. This will be new ground. This will be a paradigm shift in your way of thinking. And I don't, as I have been doing, and I has, as I have been asking you right from the start, I don't expect for you to completely take this through blind faith. Or just because Bhante has said it, he's a monk, he should know what he's talking about. Oh no. That makes absolutely no sense. And it's of no value. Instead, as you have been doing throughout these talks, I invite you to test these principles in the lab of your life. Analyze this. Contemplate on it. Debate with yourself. Reason it. Argue with yourself. And try and, if you could, prove this to be false. Like science, like all hypotheses in science, this should be falsifiable. And the same applies here. This is a science. So if you can manage to prove that this is false, then so be it. I encourage you to try and prove that this is false. Because in doing so, you will realize, well, you'll realize something. What might you realize? You'll realize why these are called the Four Noble Truths.
because they cannot be proven false. That's not me suggesting that you should not try to. Please do. Please do try. It's certainly a way that I have found very successful in my studies of various disciplines and particularly the Buddhist philosophy. It is why today with conviction, without a shadow of a doubt, I can claim that what I'm about to share with you is the absolute truth. Because I have done just that. I have tried to prove it false, but it didn't work. It is true. Without question, it is true. So let me present that to you. Let's go back to the examples. When we'll work through them one by one. Let's take the example of the kid who wants to have his chocolate all by himself. I can't have my chocolate all by myself. The I can't have my chocolate all by myself exists because I want to have my chocolate all by myself. Do you agree with me on that? Let's take it one small step at a time. You know, any I can't problem, you know, I, sometimes I can't is not a problem, but I can't, it can become a complaint, a problem, because you want it, right? You can't do something, is never a problem if you don't want it. But when you want something, and then you can't have it, now we think that is the problem. So what did we do when we thought that was a problem? We found the cause of that, and then we found a method to eradicate the cause, and then we executed that method. But did that ever take away the problem for good? Right? One day, you managed to have your chocolate ball by yourself. But what about the next day? Right? If it's not your brother this time, it's going to be your sister. If it's not your sister this time, it's going to be your friend. If it's not that, then it's probably going to be your puppy. He wants to have a piece of it. And he's not got any plans to let you have it all by yourself. It could be some other reason. Now you want to have a piece of chocolate and it's been in the cupboard for about a week or two and you go in and, oh, it's gone off. Now you can't have it. See, but you still want it. That's not going away. And you still can't have it. That's not going away. So you see, addressing the can't have problem, right? The can't have problem, can't have within air quotes. Addressing the can't have problem is very temporary. Whatever solution you bring to that problem is very temporary. It does not permanently fix a problem. Because no matter how many times you fix the I can't have problem, you'll always be left for another day to fix the same problem. Are you with me on that? Let's go to the one of the other examples. We talked about the car. Right? So I want a car, but I can't have it. Let's focus on the I can't have it, which was the 
non-noble truths. Now, what we did was we went and got ourselves a bank loan and that enabled us to take out the cause that was causing the problem, the can't-have problem. That is, no money. Now we have money. Now we can go and get ourselves a car. Great. But has that taken away the problem? What about the next time you want a car? It might be that the next time you want a car, again, you don't have enough money for it. Maybe you want a newer model. Maybe you want a different brand. Maybe you want one that can run on autopilot. But you can't afford it. You could afford the old one, you got yourself a loan, but now you want a different model, a different type, a different car. Now maybe it's not a car you want. Now you want a bigger, maybe you want a van, a caravan. Maybe you want to buy yourself a jet. Now, same problem again, right? So if you're back to square one, back where you started, have you solved a problem, really? Do you think you found the root cause? Right, for those of you who are familiar with root cause problem analysis, tell me. There are two ways you can be satisfied that you have found the root cause. One, you keep following, like maybe say a fishbone diagram, right? You, you keep following the, the paths and until you get to the, to the problem, to the root cause. And you can't see any step further from that. You have found it and you decide, right, that's it. That's the root cause. Right? And then you can be satisfied with yourself. Right? I, I'm sure this is the root cause. There's another way you can find out whether you have actually found the root cause. And what is that? Whatever cause you would have found, work on it to eradicate it and now see if the problem's gone for good. If the problem hasn't gone for good, what does that tell you about the cause that you found? Assuming that it was the root cause, or at least thinking that it was the root cause, what does that tell you about it? That it wasn't the root cause in the first place. So if when you take a solution, when you pick a solution, you apply it, and yet the problem remains, that is solid evidence, is it not? That you did not manage to find the root cause in the first place? <laughs> so, you, you wanted that car, you couldn't have it, you went and found the money to buy it, to purchase it, you got yourself the car now, and next time you want a bigger car or a different kind of vehicle, now you need the money again and you're back to the same place. Has the problem been solved? Do you think you found the root cause? Clearly not. Now I need you to really focus on this because, you know, there's a level of abstraction that you need to go deep into to be able to really resonate with what I'm sharing with you here. Because, you know, if you take this very superficially, this might sound nonsensical even to some. I don't know what Bhante is talking about. I got my money because the bank lent me some. I went and got my car. I got my car. So what's the problem? Root cause? Problem analysis? Yeah, you've done that. So what's the problem? What's the deal? I got the car. Yes, yes, you got the car. Yeah, right. 
But next time, you can run into, run into the same problem. You might say, yes, but that's a different car. Yes, but it's the same problem. Different car, but same problem. Right? The problem in its, you know, at its essence is the same. I want something and I can't have it. That problem has not been solved ever in life, has it? You know, whether that's a car or a house or, you know, a wife or, or anything for that matter. You want something, you can't have it. Has there ever been a time where you took some solution, applied it, and you never wanted it again? Or, you know, you, you, were ne you never found yourself in a situation where you couldn't have it again? You know, even, say, let's go back to the car example, that you buy your car, now you've got it, fair enough, right? What happens over time? The car starts to disintegrate fall apart. No, I'm not talking you know, one or two years. I mean, you know, let's say 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years. You know, these days, you know, a car that lasts for 30 odd years, you know, it's, it's good as a bullock cart. It's about time you need to find another car. They don't make stuff to last that long these days. So, now you're back to the same problem, right? What was it? I want a car and I can't have it. Why can't you have the car? Well, it's falling apart. It's no longer a car. It's spare parts put together. So now, now you need a car again. And it is to stop you from going into that state gradually, right? To stop you from going into that state, to prevent yourself from going into that state of I, I don't have my car again, you take it to a service. You do your repairs on the car. Because if you don't do that, if you don't maintain what you've got, it's going to fall apart. All conditioned things are the same. Every conditioned entity requires continual maintenance. You need to maintain things. If it's conditioned, you have to continue to maintain it. Whether that is a car, a relationship, you know what I'm talking about. Every relationship needs what? Constant maintenance. You need to maintain it. This is why you give the flowers, the chocolates, the, the cards, the, you know, the lunch outs, the going out for dinner, the dances, surprise, birthday parties. All of these are to maintain that relationship. Why? Because it's conditional. You know, we'll talk about this in more detail in future. As we begin to explore further these principles as to how it applies to our lives. You know, here I'm sharing with you some, some principles, some core principles. But in future talks, I'll help you to apply them into your life and life situations, life's examples. Then you'll begin to understand life like you never did before. You'll be stupefied. You'll be gobsmacked at some of the things we'll be discussing. And the revelations that will come out of that. The realizations that you will make as we go on that journey. Some of the things that you did just because other people said that was the right thing to do. Or just because, you know, at the spur of the moment you thought that was the right thing to do. 
or just because everyone did that and therefore you thought, you know, to fit in, I have to follow suit. Once you've understood these new principles, you'll be able to reflect on them and now ask yourself some important questions, some very poignant questions. Did I do the right thing? Have I made the right choices? Don't worry, this is not going to break your relationships. No, that is not the intention and that is not what I want for you either. All I need, all I'd like, really, is for you to be able to understand the situations that you are in. After all, Buddhism is not about letting go. It is about realization. You just need to realize. Because it is through lack of realization one suffers. Not because of what they are holding on to. It is because of a lack of realization. So we will come on to that in future talks. Right, one step at a time. There is no rush. So let's come back. Right? We went talked to the example of the car. Right? So time can disintegrate the vehicle and you no longer have it, but you still you want it. So but you still, you know, you can't have it. You can't have it. If that's the problem, now you're back back there. Or maybe your debtors, they come and take the car away. Perhaps you got it on finance and now they they've they've come and taken it away. Now you're back to I can't have my car. See? Or perhaps, you know, you got yourself into a car crash, an accident. And now you have no means of replacing that car. Again, you're back to, I can't have it. See? What does this mean? What does this prove to you? That getting a car when you want it does not equate to root cause problem solving. It's not the same thing. Getting a car when you want it or getting a car because you didn't have one and you wanted one, right? I want a car, I can't have it, therefore you went and somehow found a way to get it. That does not seem right now as the right cause of action to achieve perfect happiness because it doesn't get you there. It's a very temporary fix to a permanent problem. The problem will remain permanent until you analyze the problem accurately and you find out the true cause, the true cause of suffering. So, what is true suffering? What is that first noble truth of suffering? I want something but I can't have it. What's the problem? I can't have it. Can I suggest we look at the other one? I want a car. I want something. I want a chocolate. And I want to have it all by myself. I want this. I want that. I want to win the race. I want to become a champion. I want to achieve the best results. I want to get myself some lovely things. I want to smell that. I want to see that. I want to hear that. I want to watch that. I want to eat that. I want to have that. See, 
a different lens on this situation. What if I want something? What's the problem? Think about it. So first we talked about, I can't have what I want. Now I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, what if, instead of we focus on the I can't, what if we focus on I want as being the problem? I want something. I want to be with her, but I can't have her. Why? Well, because she's already in an affair with someone else. Now, for someone who thinks that I can't have her is the problem, what would they do? Well, I can't have her because someone else is in, is in an affair with them. And if you're feeling really wicked, right, what could you do? You could come and you could go and try and break that relationship. I know that's a pretty terrible thing to do, but, you know, these things happen. It depends on how badly you want something, doesn't it? If you really, really, really wanted her, then, you know, there's no saying how far people are willing to go. Some people can become murderers in their quest for love. How ironical. Hate in the name of love. That's a conversation for another day. But think about it. Like, even if you were able to somehow break that relationship and now get into an affair with this person that you want, right? Are you going to have her forever? Forever and ever and ever and ever? Either time is going to take her away from you or maybe a more suitable partner might take her away from you just as it happened with you. Or maybe she doesn't think that you can keep her happy and then she walks away. See? So going out and getting her does not fix the problem at its root. But what if you could somehow address the I don't want? As in it's not like you know what, I just don't want it, just take it away from me, I don't want to even look at it, I find it distasteful. Yuck, that's not what I'm talking about. Because then again, you have a want there. I want to be without it. Right? That's another want. That's not what I'm talking about. If you can address the true problem of wanting something, then it will matter not, folks, whether it's with you or whether you don't have it. You're with it or you're without it only becomes a problem when you want it or when you don't want it. By don't wanting it, I mean take it away from me. I want to not have it, as in good riddance. Right, so think of it as being three different states. First, we talked about I want it. Right, and then you have I want to be without it. You know, that's that's a real desire. I want her out of my life. Right, I just want to be rid of it. 
I want to be rid of the other person. Take it away. You know, he's the bane of my life. Just take him away from me. I hate it. Right? These are words that express wanting in another way. What is that? I want the opposite of what I have now. When I want my car but I don't have it, that's wanting something that you don't have. Sometimes, you know, it's always wanting something you don't have. But sometimes you'll have something and you want to be in a state of not having it or for it to not be in your presence or for you to not be in its presence. They are equally sufferable. Then you'll say, take it away from me, I don't want it. But there's a third state. And what is that? I neither want it, nor do I not want it. So really, there's no mental, psychological connection of want or desire between you and the said object, person, situation, circumstance, whatever. You have severed the mental attachment between yourself and the object. So its presence does not worry you. Its absence does not worry you either. Presence or absence means the same. Now how about that? What if you could say, car? Well, you know, I, I don't necessarily want a car. It's okay for it to be there, but, you know, it's fine if I didn't have one. You want to take it? Take it, it's fine. You want to give me a car? Fine. Oh, you, no, you don't want to give it? Okay, fine. It's still fine. See, that way, the car, its presence or absence, cannot affect you mentally. Now, you might ask me, well, Bhante, how, how can one get to that sort of state of mind where, you know, you, you absolutely don't want anything in life? Now, hold on. Hold your horses. Let's get there one step at a time. First, I need you to understand this as a principle. Don't worry about how we get there or if it's even possible. Just imagine the possibilities. How we get there? Can we get there? When can we get there? These are problems we'll talk about later. There's plenty of time for that. But first you need to imagine the possibilities. As with anything in life. Before you do something, you've got to imagine the possibilities. What's possible? Now, what does that end state look like? What is, it, what, is, what is your dream? So I want to present to you this as your dream. This as your, you know, something that is possible. I want to invite you to fill your imagination with this principle that I present to you. Imagine a state of mind where there's nothing you particularly want, whether it's a person, an object, a circumstance, a situation, a day of the week, right? Whether what what weather it is. I think about you know, people like a hot, if if someone's there who likes warm weather, right? A sunny day. Then whenever it's 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 a rainy day, that can upset them. 
if it's a cold day, I can upset them. So you are susceptible to things that happen around you in the world that you live in. If you have a preference, if you have a preferred state of affairs, if you prefer to have a car, then you will suffer when you don't have it. Or you will suffer at the threat of not having it. Because you could still have a car, you know, but you know, you could be living in fear. Because fear, both fear and grief have a part to play here. Again, two ideas we will be discussing in the future. Grief is when you've lost something. Fear is the thought of losing something. One is after the event. The other is before the event. So when you look at it that way, both before and after the event, you're in a state of suffering. But that's only because you still want it. Now, today my goal has been to present to you this fundamentally novel way of thinking about this problem, about the problem that has cursed your life, about the problem that has taken away your happiness, that has made happiness so evasive, that has made happiness something that you must always run after, something that has always been the object of your pursuit. For as long as mankind believes that it's fine to want things, the only problem is not, the only problem is when I can't have them. For as long as they hold on to that belief, tell me, can they ever be happy? Finding solutions to that problem of can't have what I want, is that a permanent solution? Can they ever find fulfillment? Satisfaction, bliss in their lives. Are you like that today? Have you never done things for your happiness? By following the four non-noble truths? By following those methods, have you never tried to be happy? Okay, so are you? Are you right now? Are you happy? So you're telling me there's nothing in this world that can upset you? Really? What, not even if I said you were ugly? Maybe you wouldn't care too much about what I think about you. But imagine, you know, someone who you care about how they feel about you. What if they said to you, I don't want to be with you anymore. I want you out of my life. You're ugly. I hate you. How would that make you feel? Something you dote on, something you, you love dearly. Something you treasure. What if you lost it? How, does that, how would that make you feel? So you see, despite you having repeatedly 
engaged in the four non-noble truths, having, having used that as the guiding principle of your life to achieve happiness, having done that countless times, even to this date, you are still unhappy. Yes or no? I know, you'll have to agree with me. What that tells you then is that the path that you were on has not allowed you, has not helped you to achieve that happiness. Therefore, I suggest this alternative to you. Instead of going after the things that you can't have, how about you work on the things that you want? In other words, how about you work on wanting it? Because when you work on wanting something, you're working on your mind, yourself, your emotions. Instead of working on acquiring that which you desire. I want to leave you with that thought for today. Because I, I, I understand, I'll need to give you some time to contemplate on this. I'll need, you to, I'll need to give you some time to think about this. Reflect on this. As I said, it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about life's problems and how you may have looked at life up until now. And once again, I remind you, I'm not suggesting for one moment that you have to drop everything else and pick this up now as your life's philosophy. Oh, certainly not. It won't work like that anyway, even if you tried. It doesn't work like that. It's pointless doing that, so don't do it. My suggestion to you would be, consider with an open mind. What about the things, you know, just make a list if you could, of the things that you want but you couldn't have. And to this day you are, you are struggling to achieve them, to, to somehow acquire them. Right? Even if you were to acquire them, would that take away the problem fundamentally? No, because you still have to protect it from the elements. You have to protect it from robbers, thieves, from people who also want what you want. You have to protect it from time. Why? Aging and death. So no matter what you have managed to achieve, you still have to continue to protect it because you still want it. So pain does not leave you. Agony does not leave you. Suffering does not leave you. However, instead, if somehow it were possible, if somehow it were possible that you could work on wanting something, wanting someone, wanting to be somewhere, wanting to do something, if you could somehow work on that wanting, that, that, that urge that you feel inside, that desire, if you could work on that, the craving that you feel for something, if you could work on that and extinguish that, wouldn't you then be free for good? That does not mean that you have to then live without it. Certainly not. Remember, it's not about letting go. It's only about realization. So I invite you to think about this. Please take some time. Reflect on this. Go through some of the things in your own life, things that you want but you can't have. Right? You've been working to get rid of the can't have problem, but what if you if what if were even if, what if it were possible? to work on the I want problem and you didn't want it, then wouldn't you be a free man? Think about it. Think about it and we'll discuss further next week. So, let's take a moment then.
to transfer the merits that we have all acquired. That is to be grateful to everyone who's helped us to get this far on this journey. And let's conclude for today. Let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord with this teaching and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasakas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend them. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at the monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. They abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nirvana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery and to those of you who have provided the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, ropes and medicines as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. And may to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, Sons, daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us and supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhutashasana. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this long journey in Sansara, and to all who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form they could. Let us also transfer merits to our members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations, and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer merits to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, and reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them, and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may, through the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, 
We be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the merits we have acquired today, you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become one of those Arahatun Mahanses and Arahat Menin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautam Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to discussing and continuing our discussion next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.